taste of honey coming soon. Today, children everywhere are making preparations for an event of world-shaking significance. The annual visit of the Easter Bunny, who will be riding into town on his now famous steam engine Easter Sunday morning at quarter to dawn. Informed sources report that legions of junior citizens are straightening their bonnets, shining up their shoes, and making monumental vows not to peek when the bunny hides the eggs. Meanwhile, letters by the thousands have been flooding postal facilities all over the world. Easter is right around the corner. It is. And when one thinks of Easter, they'd be hard-pressed not to picture rabbits. It's true. Now, when it comes to children's books, choosing those cuddly little floppy-eared animals seems a smart thing to do. Indeed. This episode in our second edition of the Read It series, we'll be giving the story of the fuzzy little friends and the adventures they got into. This is Toys Were Us. All of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Hello, and thanks for hopping on into another adventure into time and space with us at Toys R Us. We are your weekly history lesson into the toys that made us who we are. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Hey, everybody. Brian, this week is a special week. It is. Not only is this our Easter special. It is. This is also our 20th episode. Look at that. Which is, like, crazy to me. It is, because it just seems like we started this It feels like just the other day. Yeah. It's very humbling. It is. Uh, and I'm Absolutely. really thankful for every single one of you that listen from wherever you are. I really want to thank you for coming back each week and spending your time with us. Yep. What he said. No, it, it really is gratifying because we can see, you know, it's it's all over the world. It, it really is. Yeah. It's it's nice. It's gratifying. Um, We are 20 episodes down and we have many, many, many more to come. A ton. That being said, Brian. This week we're going to go over some of the rabbit-related books that have been staples in so many people's childhoods. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to hop on in? We're hunting rabbits. Oh, perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go. We're going to start our journey with my particular favorite rabbit-related book. Mm -hmm. Deborah and James Howe's Bunicula. Ah, Bunicula. Yes. All so, right. we will be going first to 1978. Where, where we meet up with James Howe. A struggling actor, not author. Okay. James, who was a kind of fucking badass kid, because check this out, he okay. self-published newspapers. His favorite being As a the, kid? Yes. His favorite Baller. being the Gory Gazette, <laughs> which he made for a self-founded club, the Vampire Legion. Dude, that sounds metal as fuck. As a child, dude? As a kid? Um, but now, as an adult, James was in a slump. And one of those kind of like lie around and mope on the couch, flipping through the channels and not really knowing what you're going to do with your life type of slumps. Mm-hmm. We've all been there. Oh, yeah. Um, every one of us. Every single one of us. And in his sad and unsure nights, James watched countless schlocky 70s movies. And, and weren't those the best, though? Hell, I mean, you have to imagine it was, like, a lot to get the stuff off of his mind. Right. I mean, that, that's, like, the, the best way to do it, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Amongst his favorites 
are the vampire movies that ran rampant back then. Oh, like the old ha- ha- Hammer movies? Yeah. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Hal told Scholastic that many of the movies were more silly than scary. I'll give him that. Yeah, he said, I don't remember the moment when the character Benicula came into my head, but I suspect it came from asking the question, what's the silliest, least likely vampire I could imagine? You know, I gotta say that that is a clever, clever ass name, Benicula. I love it. Oh, wait. (laughs) Just wait till the end. Okay. After he came up with a character, he called Count Benicula. (laughs) Hal made a little greeting card of a vampire rabbit. But he never really thought about writing a feature-length book involving the character. We're glad he did, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He said... I was not writing then, even though I always loved to write. I wasn't thinking of it as my work. It was actually my well, wife. Yeah, kind of like a project. Just like Yeah, like a hobby. Yeah. It was actually my wife, Debbie's mother, who said, that would make a great character for a children's book. Why don't you two try that? Okay. Which is like, if you got if you give credit to your mother-in-law, you've got a good mother-in-law. Yeah, you know? it's true. Um, so one night after dinner, just for fun, the house started writing the book that would become Benicula, a rabbit tail mystery. <laughs> one of us would hold the pad of paper and essentially be secretary, Howe said. Okay. We wrote that book completely out loud. We told the story. One of us would be, one of us would begin a sentence and the other might jump in and finish it. Okay. The final published story is essentially there in the first draft, just as we told it. James told Teaching Books. Dude, that's awesome. In fact, it only took maybe three or four drafts, and mostly that was fixing and polishing, which is awesome. That is awesome. I mean, for first-time authors, that's kind of unheard of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you being an author yourself, you know. Yeah. You should. Yeah. Um, from the time the house sat down to write until the time Benicula was published, the very first sentence spoken by Harold the Dog I shall never forget the first time I'd laid these now tired old eyes on our visitor. Never changed. Yeah? So that was the first sentence See, throughout all the drafts. Yeah. Which speaks of its, like, lasting power. Yeah. That it's something yeah. just so concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Just right off the bat from the get-go. Right. Um, several months into writing Benicula, Debbie was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, fuck. At first, James said they put the book aside. We had other things to deal with, but after a few months, we needed to laugh. We needed something to put our minds to that wasn't so serious and difficult. Right. And we went back to writing Benicula. Writing that book really made us laugh. It served the greater purpose of easing the pain and lifting our spirits. That's good. Sadly, Debbie wouldn't live to see the book in print, and she passed away in June 1978 at 31. Damn. Yeah. Benicula was published the next year. And it's it's just kind of, like, really sad and beautiful to think about a couple writing a book about a vampire bunny. Yeah. As, like, her own life is being drained out of her. Oh. Yeah. Damn. Didn't think of it like that. Yeah. Um, the two had chosen an illustrator who had created for art books before, like, Fireside Al's Treasury of Christmas Stories. Why does that sound familiar? It I does. Mean- um, Get Out of Bed... And the best figure skater in the whole wide world. He received the manuscript from his agent in 1978, and he said, I laughed all the way through it. I could hardly wait to get to work. <laughs> That's good. When he got down to drawing, 
he said, I would be so deeply into what I was doing that my children would come into my studio and see the expression of the character I was drawing reflected on my face. <laughs> uh, he received no art direction. He said, all the information of the characters is, is implicit in the text, which I read carefully several times. So when choosing which scenes to illustrate, mm -hmm. he looked for dynamic situations. Uh, yeah. He said... I want to show all the characters and make sure the pictures are well-placed throughout, not bunched up. Which okay. is nice. Yeah. You know, like, that's one thing J.K. Rowling kind of did right. You got one picture. Mm -hmm. That was the, the beginning of the chapter. Yep. Very concise. Yeah. He said, the story is told from the animal's point of view, so the illustrations are also from that point of view. The family is a part of the animal's world, so they need to be there, but only appear twice. Okay. The most challenging illustration to create, he said, was the first major one. It is a dark and stormy night, so the lighting is tricky. But Nicola is just a pair of eyes within a dark bundle. And a lot had to be established in that illustration. He said he wanted to present a world that was so real, the fantastical elements of the text could play against it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, it's like kind of like Batman. Yeah, you know? exactly. Just like <laughs> See him at the top of the eyes out of the like, shadows. Oh, shit. Na -na 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 -na. Um... He used three different pencils to create the illustrations. An HP graphite pencil got the most use. A 2H pencil let me get the grayer look for things I wanted to recede, Daniel said. While 2B gave me the real darks. Everything was built upon the fine lines except for the chair, which I used the texture of the illustration board. That's smart. Oh, that's clever. That's real fucking yeah. smart. Yeah. Um... Having a full-color cover was challenging because I wanted to keep the look of the inside pictures, so I used a muted watercolor over pencil. Oh, smart. That's very smart. Yeah. Um, he said that even now, 38 years after the initial publication, people come to him with stories about their discovery of the book. And speaking of the book, it was such a love story to cheesy old vampire movies. Like, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. And it has, like, those same, like, themes of, like, acceptance of lo mm -hmm. and love of, like, who you are. Because mm -hmm. a lot of them did, where, like, Vamp Dracula was, like, this, just, like, oh, poor me. He just wanted to be loved. He really did. He really did. Um, we are first introduced to the Monroes, including the boys Pete and Toby, as they return home from the movies on a dark and stormy night. Harold the dog notices that they return with a small bundle. There's something evil about this bundle. <laughs> the small bundle turns out to be a rabbit they found at the theater, with a note tied around his neck written in an ancient Carpathian dialect. The rabbit has two tiny fangs and a black pattern on his back that looks like a cape. <laughs> After some discussion, the family decides to adopt him, and since they found him at the movie Dracula, they decided to name him Bonicula. I like that. Yeah. Me too. It's such like a clever ass name, but it's also <laughs> something a kid would name a bunny. It totally found. is. Yeah. Um, shortly after adopting Benicula, the family notices vegetables mysteriously turning white. Chester, the cat, notices that in each of the vegetables there are two tiny holes. Uh oh, puncture marks. And after reading a book on vampires, a jealous Chester becomes convinced that Benicula is a vampire. Well, he wasn't wrong. He notes that Benicula sleeps all day, appears to be able to get out of his cage on his own, and has tiny fangs, which Chester believes he uses to suck vegetables dry. Uh, understandable. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Chester then convinces Harold to help him prove this by catching Benicula in the act. He strews himself and Benicula's cage with garlic. 
This succeeds only in causing Miss, Mrs. Monroe to give him a bath later, which... <laughs> Later, after reading about killing vampires with a stake through the heart, Chester tries to punch a meat stake through the sleeping <laughs> rabbit's heart. <laughs> and it doesn't do anything but confuse the poor rabbit. Since like, what the it's hell just, is this? This is just steak. <laughs> Finally, he tries to drown the rabbit by tossing his water dish on him. <laughs> this behavior results in Chester being locked outside. Brutal. So you just imagine this fucking cat just flipping a water bowl on right. the rabbit? Which is, you know, pretty standard cat behavior. It really is, yeah. Even if the cat were to like that rabbit. Yeah. Um, as the story progresses, Harold refuses to cooperate in Chester's antics. With Chester no longer speaking to him, he begins to take a liking to Benicula. After a few days, he notices that Benicula is beginning to look ill. And he stays up late one night to discover that Chester is putting garlic on and blocking all of the vegetables from Benicula, essentially starving him. Damn! Um, Harold decides to act, and that evening before Chester awakes, he takes Benicula out of his cage and places him in the family's dinner salad. (laughs) So he just fucking throws him in there. Um, But before the rabbit can feast, Chester chases him off and lands in the salad himself. Ooh. And it's at this point that the family decides to take Jester to the vet to address his strange behavior. Time to get his doodles done. Oh, God. Um, They also decide to take Bonicula to the vet as they notice he seems ill. And at the vet, Chester is... They notice he seems undead. Just a little bit. Yeah. At the vet, Chester is prescribed cat therapy. (laughs) Cat Prozac. Oh, God. Cat... Cat Cat downers. Cat sacks. Cat sacks. Yes. Pro-cats. Cat sacks. Oh, shit. Okay. Benicula is put on a vegetable liquid diet. Oh. And he takes to this so well that the family decides to keep him permanently, at which point the mysterious white vegetables stop turning up. However, the Monroes attribute the strange white vegetables to a vegetable blight at their supermarket and change stores. <laughs> it was the vegetable boy fucking things. He's, up. He's fucking sucking that fucking carrot juice right Just out. Right out of there. <laughs> The novel ends with the Monroes remaining blissfully unaware of Benicula's strange feeding habits and the danger Chester believes them to be in. The original Benicula novel sprung six sequels. Whoa! Holiday Inn in 1982. Cool. The Celery Stalks at Midnight in 1983. Nighty Nightmare in 1987. Benicula Strikes Again! Return to Holiday Inn, 1992. Benicula Strikes Again, 1999. (laughs) And Benicula Meets Edgar Allan Crowe, 2006. Oh, that is clever. Yes. Uh, Edgar Allan Crowe. There has also been two stage plays, both of them musicals. A 1982 cartoon made for ABC part of ABC's weekend special. I seem to remember that. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. The music for it, whoever did it, is fucking great. Yeah. It's one of these things that has just, like, remained in my head. The theme from it, it's like... fucking awesome um 
Yeah, it was a 23-minute film directed by Charles A. Nichols, who had previously served as an animation director on series like Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Yeah. Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. And he would go on to direct episodes of Alvin and the Chipmunks. See, that's awesome. Uh, currently, right now, there's a Cartoon Network Manicula show that is three seasons deep. Wait, right now? Yeah. Oh, fuck. And it has voice actors like Sean Astin and Chris Kattan. What? Yeah. Okay, I gotta look this up. Yeah. Following the end of the series, James Howe began a spin-off series called Tales from the House of Benicula, which, <laughs> which are written by Howie, the Dash Hound puppy introduced to the series in Holiday Inn. Oh, shit, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Wait, okay, I'm a little confused. The... the Bonicula has bat wings for ears. Oh, yeah. I think I talked about it, but, like, he does... He has more powers and shit. I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's a cartoon. It has to be. Um, There is also a series called Bonicula and Friends Ready to Read. They are a series of six picture book adventures um, about characters that are from the stories. Um, Those are aimed at, like, beginning readers. Oh, okay, like like an easy reader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, James Howe remarried after his wife passed, but ultimately divorced that wife. And in the 90s, he came out as gay. Oh, yeah. look at that. And has since used his platform to push for acceptance and love and is doing great things. Good. Now, let's go back in time. Okay. To 1890. Okay. Where we meet up with a native of London, Marjorie Winfred Williams. Marjorie Winfred Williams. I misspoke. Marjorie Winifred Williams. Winifred Williams. Yes. Uh, She moved with her family to the United States from London. A year later, they moved to rural Pennsylvania in a farming community. Mm -hmm. And over the succeeding years until 1898, Marjorie was a student at the convent school in Sharon Hill, Pennsylvania. Good Lord. Yeah. Um, her ambition to make a living as an author propelled her in 1901, at the age of 19, to return to her birthplace and submit to a London publisher her first novel, The Late Returning, which was published in 1902 and aimed at an adult audience. It did not sell well, and neither did her subsequent novels, The Price of Youth and The Bar. Okay. She was kind of like the... The reverse J.K. Rowling. <laughs> because she had, like, a few shitty adult novels first, right. and then a massive child's books okay. uh, success. Yeah. Um, while visiting her publisher, Marjorie Williams met Francesco... Francesco. Francesco Bianco, an Italian living in London, who was employed as the manager of one of the book departments. Okay. They were married in 1904 and became oh. the parents of the son, Chico... Chico. And a daughter, Pamela. (laughs) Here's Chico, and here's Here's Pam. Hi, I'm Pam. I'm Pam. This is my brother, Chico. Pamela was a renowned child artist who had a showing in Turin at the age of 11. Oh. Which is insane. Yeah, it is. fucking 11-year-old. Shit. Yeah. Her fame brought the Bianco family to New York, with the exception of Chico. They lived in the Greenwich Village area and. Um, until the end of their lives. Oh, damn. Uh, Pamela illustrated some of her mother's books, including The Skin Horse, which sounds like a Silent Hill creature. Yeah, it does. 
and the little, little wooden doll. When her children were young, Marjorie considered motherhood a full-time job, and her writing efforts were curtailed. Hmm. It was like early 1900s. Yeah, it was, wasn't so progressive back then. No, no. Um, in 1907, the family left England, heading first to Paris, where Francesco was head of the rare books department at Brentano's. They later settled in Turin, Italy, in August of 1914. Okay. But in August of 1914, Italy, along with the rest of Europe, was plunged into World mm-hmm. War One, And Francesco Bianco joined the Italian army. While remaining home with the children, Marjorie Bianco gained hope and inspiration from the works of a poet she called her spiritual mentor. Hmm. Walter de Lamar who she felt truly understood the mindset of children. In 1914, Marjorie Williams wrote a horror novel, The Thing in the Woods, about a werewolf in the Pennsylvania region. Damn. The Thing in the Woods was later republished in the U.S. in a slightly revised version under the pseudonym Harper Williams. The Thing in the Woods was extremely influential to H.P. Lovecraft, as it influences the Dunwich horror. Okay. In turn... He wrote a poem entitled On the Thing in the Woods by Harper Williams, which is extremely fucking funny to me. Yeah. Because if you know anything about H.P. Lovecraft, is that he's a racist, sexist piece of shit. Yeah, I've heard. So, to think that one of his, like, most well-known pieces... Came from a woman? (laughs) From such a misogynist? Yeah. That was inspired by a woman? Just kind of fucking is like, yes. That is, like, the ultimate fuck you. At the end of 1918, the Great War had ended. But post-war hunger and deprivation became a problem in Europe. Bianco had retained her U.S. residency and by 1921 gained permission to return along with her family to the United States. She's like, fuck this, we out. Yeah, we're, we're bouncing. Inspired by the innocence and playful imagination of her children, as well as the inspiration she felt from the magic and mysticism contained in the works of Walter D. Lamar, she decided to resume her writing and gained almost immediate celebrity. Good. The Velveteen Rabbit, or How Toys Became Real, was Marjorie William Bianco's first American work, and it remains to be her most famous. Um, yeah, because, I mean, everybody knows that one. Velveteen, hell yeah. Uh, it has remained a classic piece of literature throughout numerous adaptations in children's theaters as well as radio, television, and in the movies. The Arthur's trademark undercurrents of sentimentality and sadness persist in the tale of a small boy who finds a Velveteen Rabbit in his Christmas stocking. The boy quickly discards the toy after playing with it for a few hours in the bustle of Christmas. You know, because like... He's like, man... You open one toy, you're like, ooh, fuck yeah. Yeah. I'll never stop playing with this. And then the next toy is like, ooh, fuck fuck yeah. I'll never stop playing with this. Yeah. Um, In the nursery, the rabbit is looked down on by the fancier wind-up toys. And he asks the skin horse, again, terrifying. Fucking awful. uh, What is real? The skin horse tells him, when a child loves you for a long, long time... Not just play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. So, like, he's getting existential, like, (laughs) advice from this thing called the skin horse? Yes. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, the boy comes to adore the rabbit, and they are constant companions. This happy assistance continues until the boy contracts scarlet fever. Oh, fuck. And the rabbit stays with him, whispering to him of the games they'll play when he is better. And as the boy gets better, the family prepares to take him to the seaside. 
Although the rabbit looks forward to the seaside very much, the doctor insists that he be thrown out and burned along with the other toys uh, that may be infected. That's where I thought it was going. While the rabbit is waiting to be burned, however, he cries a real tear. Oh. From which a fairy emerges. And the fairy tells him... You're now a real bunny. Yeah, the fairy tells the rabbit that he was real to the boy because the boy really loved him. But now she will make him truly real. Oh. Later, the boy sees a real rabbit in the garden, and he thinks it looks like his old rabbit. But he does not know that it really is the velveteen rabbit he once loved. Oh, fuck. Which, like, Jesus Christ, for man. a children's book. That's that's some heavy shit, man. Fuck. And mm. it, go, it goes to show you just how, like, pathetic people have become. Yeah. When you think about the fact that Shel Silverstein has been banned. Yeah. But not, like, this existentialistic fucking nightmare <laughs> that is velveteen rabbit. Yeah. Rabbit. Like... It handles things that are so much harder. It's heavy, man. On a, quote, fragile mind. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, look at this quote, okay? (laughs) When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. No, see, that's bullshit. I'm real, and I really mind being hurt. Yeah, but you know what? You gotta think about it this way. I guess guess sometimes it's a good thing. You have have the opportunity to be hurt. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You choose your pain, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking as deep as that is. Yeah, you fucking choose your pain. It's like a it's like a choose your own adventure. Yeah, book choose your pain. Of pain. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you listen to more podcasts than you know what to do with. If you want to be even more like me, well you should download the Podcoin app. It's a free and very user friendly app that pays you to listen to podcasts. You get paid in Podcoins. Which you can do one of two things with. Put it towards charities, they have an entire full list. Or buy yourself a gift card from Target, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, Amazon, the list goes on and on. So what are you waiting for? Download the Podcoin app today and use the code TOYSWERUS to get yourself 300 extra Podcoins. And now, back to the show. The following adaptations have been made of the Velveteen Rabbit. Um... In 1973, LSB Productions made the classic original 16mm film version with a running time of 19 minutes. It won the Chris Plaque Award, Silver Plaque Award, the Golden Babe Award, and it appeared at the Columbus Film Festival, the Chicago International Film Festival, and the Chicagoland Film Festival. It was a finalist at the American Film Festival and has been acclaimed by parents and teachers worldwide. This is definitely one of those things that, like... Teacher's gonna wheel the fucking TV. Yep. <laughs> you know you're gonna have a good day when Velveteen they wheel in the TV in the Hell VCR. Yeah. Uh, there was a 1976 Rankin Bass special. Oh, Rankin Bass. Yep. Um, in 1984, it was part of the Enchanted Musical Playhouse series where Marie Osmond played the part of the Velveteen Rabbit. Them Osmonds again. We were just talking about We them. were. Uh, in 1985, Rabbit Ears production with Random House Video made one narrated by Meryl Streep. I'm okay with that. Yes. Yeah. And this was like prime Meryl Streep. Yeah. 85? Dude. That's like Dingo Ate My Baby <laughs> 95. Or 85. Yeah. Uh, also in 1985, two different animated adaptations were made at almost the same exact time. The first narrated by Christopher Plummer. All right. Was produced in Canada. Uh, the second was produced by Hanna-Barbera in Australia. Wait, What? Yes, and it was broadcasted as an ABC Weekend special. Okay. 
2003 was adapted into a claymation film by Zizou Animation. In 2007, a live-action short film adaptation was released by Horsefly Studios. Hmm. And it was, for whatever reason, distributed by Anchor Bay. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, that Anchor Bay. Like, the one that put out, like, the Evil Dead movies, yes. Anchor Bay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In October 2015, Atlantic Theatre Company produced a new musical adaptation of The Velveteen Rabbit at the Linda Rose Theatre. <laughs> um, a musical version? Scarlet Fever! Uh-huh, you gotta get that fever! Yeah, how do you make that into a musical? <laughs> <laughs> That's so bleak. It really is. Um, and then Magic Light Pictures will produce an adaptation as a Christmas special. With <laughs> with music and score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I hurt myself today. <laughs> to see if I was real. To see if I was... <laughs> <laughs> That's so perfect. Oh, Jesus. Oh. And yes, Velveteen Rabbit, you were real. You were. I'm a real boy. I'm a real boy. Hmm. So, once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their name were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. So wrote Beatrix Potter all those years ago, unaware that that very sentence would reveal a whole imaginary world to children around the world who, even today, after more than a century, crave to hear just one more story of Peter Rabbit. Yep. We bounce on back to 1866. Oh, shit. And we meet up with Helen Beatrix Potter, better known as Beatrix. Right, right. She was born into a privileged family in Kensington, London, Hmm. and she spent her early years years spent her early years isolated from other children as she was educated by a governess Ooh, damn hoity-toity right this in fact might have been the initial idea behind creating a much-loved imaginative world of fauna and flora that beatrix could escape to during the holidays with her family in scotland in the light district okay deeply inspired by her surroundings she loved to spend hours observing and painting her numerous pets such as rabbits mice frog and lizards and the landscape around them. Beatrix was a dedicated and industrious student who diligently followed the instructions of Miss Cameron, her art teacher. Okay. I like how that's such like an art teacher name, too. Miss Cameron. <laughs> Miss Cameron. Miss Cameron. I gotta pee. <laughs> My cat's breath smells like cat food. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprisingly, her first artist models were her pet rabbits. The first one was Benjamin Bouncer a lover of crispy buttered toast. Well, oh, toast. <laughs> That's true. I like my toast burnt, though. Damn. Yeah, like, yeah. gotta sear that shit a little bit. A little bit of char. Uh, his successor was named Peter Piper, the untiring companion of Beatrix during her walks. And every year, Beatrix looked forward to the summer because of her family's holiday itinerary, which included three months in northern Scotland. And to her and her brother, this meant only one thing, freedom. Can you imagine uh, see what you did there? Scotland freedom? Like Thank you. Uh, long before she became a popular published author, Beatrix developed a particular talent for scientific illustration by drawing and exploring fungi. <laughs> so just imagine, Does like, this girl young... know how to party? <laughs> just imagine a young Beatrix Potter just like sketching oh, fungus. That's a nice that's a nice mushroom. 
I hate mushrooms, man. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of mushrooms myself. I hate how they look, too. They freak me out. I don't like it. Yeah, that's why I don't trip balls on mushrooms. <laughs> I actually don't trip balls, period, but, I mean, if I do, it's not going to be mushrooms. No, it's like sleeping pills and, like, maybe a tramadol. Ooh. Um, that's fun for the whole family, though. Yeah. I mean, what? In 1896, she wrote a, a paper on fungi reproduction titled On the Germination of the Spores of Agarisi? I don't know, man. Fungus got weird names. They do. I, yeah, I'm not even going to pretend to pretend to know how to say this. Which, unfortunately, was rejected by the Royal Botanical Gardens. Stuffy boys club, anyways. Right? A year later, George Mass, a fungi expert from Kew Gardens in London, presented her work to the Linnean Society of London. A place where Beatrix, being a woman, was not pre permitted to pre present it herself. <laughs> this is exactly what I was just saying. Yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, Stuffy boys glow. Nevertheless, scientists today recognize and appreciate her contribution to mycology. Damn right. So like some shit that she did in like the eighteen fucking nineties. Yeah. Is helping scientists today. Way ahead of her time. That's bananas. Um, the male members of her scientific club in England were not the only ones who ignored Beatrix's aspirations. Her family also disproved. Her own family? Of course. Assholes. Believing that a proper, respectable lady Ew. must eventually marry and mustn't work. She's like, I do what I want. Yeah. Whatever, I do what I want. However, Beatrix's desire for sharing her imaginative art prevailed. And after a, public, after a few publications of greeting card designs and illustrations, which seems to be like... Uh, there's a pattern. There is. There's an absolute pattern. Um, her stories were about to see the light of day. Several publishers rejected the tale of Peter Rabbit, so the persistent Beatrix decided to publish it by herself. Smart. That's very smart. Good for her. In December 1901, Beatrix printed 250 copies and handed them to her family and friends. The book was immediately praised and quickly gained a reputation, so the publishing house Frederick Warren & Co., Reconsidered the decline offer and contracted <laughs> Beatrix to a lengthy contract. In October 1902, the story of Peter Rabbit became a bestseller and was follow followed by two other well-known books. The Tailor of Gloucester... Gloucester? Gloucester? What do you say that? Uh, you know, it's it's one of those, like, Scottish words, and it's like... Could be either of them. Yeah, it's like... Well, like, uh, like... Worcestershire sauce yes, is actually yes. pronounced Wooster. Yeah. It's uh, kind of like Gloucester, Gloucester. Yes. And Somewhere the tale good. of the squirrel nutkin. Is that anything like squirrel nut zippers? Oh. D and the A and the M and the N and the A and the T and the I O N. That's when the publication of Beatrix's legendary stories had begun. Right. At the publishing house, Beatrix encountered Norman Warren, her official editor, who soon recognized his affection towards her, and she ardently replied. Ooh. Yeah. Hello, hello. Norman's proposal, however, was opposed by the Potters, as they refused to allow their daughter to marry someone who worked in a trade. <laughs> oh, Jesus. 
And you know, so many people have that same... Even today, yes. Today, that same outlook. Yep. However, as always, Beatrix listened to her heart and became engaged to Norman in 1905. Good for her. However, Uh one month later... Fate had other ideas. He died of leukemia. (laughs) Fuck! (laughs) Which just kind of feels like, oh. Uh, We had to take spot to a farm so we could have more room to run around type of situation. Yeah. He was definitely fucking murdered. Yeah. You know what I mean? By the family. Like one month later he yeah. dies? That's a little suspect. Yeah. Definitely a little suspect. Like I know leukemia is bad and it strikes quick. Yeah, but it definitely does. Damn. But no you're not marrying that man. And a month later he dies? Yeah. Murdered. Uh, following his death Beatrix found solace in her most beloved place. Ugh. The Lake District. She invested in a farm known as Hilltop Farm, a place that would appear in a number of her stories. And the negotiation of her investments were conducted by William Helis, which is spelled like Healy's. I wanted to (laughs) make sure it was Healy's, but it's spelled like Healy's. That's awesome. Uh, He was a local solicitor with whom she became very close. In 1912, she accepted his marriage proposal and married him the following year. The couple lived at Castle Cottage in the Lake District, where she spent the last years of her life before she died in 1943. Damn. The Tale of Peter Rabbit, which Beatrix self-published initially... That's baller. ...has reached 45 million copies sold around the world, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. Damn right. The Tale of Peter Rabbit goes as follows. It focuses on a family of anthropomorphic rabbits. Right. The widowed mother rabbit keeps her four rabbit children, Flopsy, Mopsy, Cotton, and Cottontail, and Peter, from entering the vegetable garden of a man named Mr. McGregor. Like that's the most Scottish name I've ever. It really heard. is. Connor McGregor. Connor McGregor. Uh, her triplets, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, obediently refrain from entering the garden, but Peter enters the garden to snack on some vegetables. Eh, as one wants you know. want to do. Peter ends up eating more than what is good for him and goes looking for parsley to cure his stomachache. Which I didn't know that parsley cures stomachaches. Really? Is that a thing? I, I don't know. I know ginger ale helps. Ginger ale definitely yeah, helps. Yeah, ginger ale's awesome. Peter is spotted by Mr. McGregor and loses his jacket and shoes while trying to escape. Whoops. He hides in a watering can in a shed, but then has to run away again when Mr. McGregor finds him and ends up completely lost. After sneaking past a cat... Peter sees the gate where he entered the garden from his distance and heads for it, despite being spotted and chased by Mr. McGregor. With difficulty, he wriggles under the gate and escapes from the garden, but he spots his abandoned clothing being used to dress Mr. McGregor's scarecrow. It's <laughs> a big scarecrow or a small scarecrow. That's true. Who the yeah. fuck was that going to scare? Coconut always kick that thing in the rabbit. fucking face. Right? After returning home, a sick Peter is sent to bed by his mother, and his triplet sisters receive a scrumptious dinner of milk, bread, and berries, while Peter has a supper of chamomile tea. Tea, which is... Chamomile tea is good. It's not bad at all. No, it's hardly a punishment. And with that, we share a cup of chamomile tea with our springy friend, Facty. Yeah! The Fact in the Box. My favorite. Bonicula and its sequels paid homage to mystery legends by basing their stories loosely on Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. Okay. 
James Howe's favorite character is ha- uh, Harold the dog. Yeah, he was mine too. Bill Hader has said that Benicula is one of the reasons he was interested in the arts. That's awesome. So anytime you see something with Bill Hader, yeah, like Benicula. Stefan, well, yeah. Bill Hader. Uh, Benicula canonically has a son. His name? Bonicula Jr.? No. Sonicula. Yeah! Uh, and James Howe has gone on to write several novels that focus on high school and the struggles of acceptance, written with his daughter's struggles in mind. Okay. Uh, just as Raggedy Ann became a martyr for vaccinations, the Velveteen became... Velveteen Rabbit became one for Scarlet Fever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um... A lot of people see this as more of an existential horror than anything else. Yeah. Especially if you think about all the toys that you love, but you have lost or thrown away. Yeah. You're like, ooh. Shit. <sighs> the landfill becomes a, 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 a much more, more like, Desperate ooh, place. Like the fucking, uh, like, auto wrecking yard scene in Brave Little Toaster. Yeah. Which is bleak. <laughs> or like the, the fucking incinerator in Toy yes, Story 3. Yes, what the fuck? Jesus. Uh, the Velveteen Rabbit joins the ranks of Pinocchio and AI, artificial intelligence, in using the blue fairy to turn something real trope. Oh, yeah. yeah. Many churches have shoehorned a lesson of the love of Christ into the Velveteen Rabbit. Of course. Which is like, just diminishes the entire Scarlet Fever. It really does. No, it's about Jesus. No, it's about Jesus. Okay, no. You need to listen. Jesus. It's about the Lord. It is about the Lord. Um, There is an original stuffed Velveteen Rabbit released around the same time as the book was, currently on eBay for $59,000. Holy shit. (laughs) $59,000. That's a lot of cake. Um, Peter Rabbit was the first character to be fully merchandised. Okay. And it was Beatrix Potter's idea. In 1903, seeing the popularity of Peter Rabbit, she began to sew doll versions for Warren's niece, writing, I am cutting out calico patterns of Peter. I have not got it right yet, but the expression is going to be lovely, especially the whiskers pulled out of a brush. <laughs> she she patented the doll, making Peter Rabbit the oldest licensed character. That's baller. It was followed by Peter Rabbit games, figurines, wallpaper, blankets, and tea sets. The merchandising helped make Peter Rabbit into the popular icon and turn the world of Beatrix Potter into one of the biggest literature-licensed uh, entities of its day. Indeed. Walt Disney wanted to make a Peter Rabbit movie around the same time of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. He approached Potter about making an animated version of Peter Rabbit, but she refused. Good for her. Some accounts say that this... Because she wanted... Some accounts say that it was because she wanted to remain in control of the rights to the work. Sure. Others suggest that she didn't think her drawings were good enough for a large-scale animation, which she thought would reveal all their imperfections. Hmm. I like to think it's the, like, I want to control my own shit. Well, yeah. Because she seemed like that type of woman. Yeah. You know? Like, she yeah. fought hard for what she wanted. Absolutely she did. Um, Peter pops up in... Five of Potter's other stories, The Tale of Benjamin Bunny, The Tale of the Flopsy Bunnies, The Tale of Mr. Todd, The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle, <laughs> and The Tale of Ginger and the Pickles. Well, I do like pickles. Yeah. Um, those were all based on other pets she owned. <laughs> Benjamin was a real rabbit, and Mrs. Tiggywinkle was a hedgehog. 
I did not see that coming. No, but it's awesome. It is awesome. Uh, Peter Rabbit and his sibling Cottontail were the name basis for the Rankin-Bass classic, Here Comes Peter Peter Cottontail. And there is a bonkers amount of Peter Rabbit merch, including plates, kettles, napkins, tablecloths, vintage peanut butter jars, glasses, and of course, stuffed animals. That's awesome. With that, we reach the end of a wild Easter egg hunt of knowledge here at Toys R Us. If you like what you heard and you'd like to continue learning new things about old memories, check us out across all social media platforms. We're at Toys R Us Podcast across the board. And what would really help us is a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcast. Um, it would be a really solid chocolate bunny in the world of hollow bunnies. Definitely. Which is a nightmare. It is. Someone gives you a hollow chocolate bunny that person It's like it's made friend. of lies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you'd really like to help us, consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash Toys R Us Podcast. Doing so will get you a producer credit. And a different reward level for every tier, the yep. lowest tier being $3. Until next time, remember, hippity-hoppity, Easter's on its way. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. Take care, everyone. Enjoy your Easter. <laughs>